Vampire War for the Second City is a Vampire the Masquerade 5th edition actual play podcast presented by DM Fiat with I, Dale, as storyteller. Please be advised that this podcast contains descriptions of gore, depravity, addiction, coercion, and other adult themes. This is not D&D. This is a game where we play monsters of the night who do monstrous things. Hope has gathered the slick flower and John Gorman in her haven. She's not sure whether Slick is cognizant of his current condition, but he doesn't seem to mind all that much. John Gorman has been laid out on the concrete floor, dominated into a deep sleep ever since he was liberated from the vaccine factory. As Hope prepares to begin her work, Emily sits on the edge of her mattress, looking on with a mixture of curiosity and revulsion on her face. Hope decides John Gorman is up first. He'll be the easiest to fix of the two. She makes a flesh-crafting roll, needing at least five successes to reverse her size changes. Hope has a duffel bag full of stray cats, decides there's no reason not to rouse the blood. She doesn't get hungrier regardless, and gets exactly five successes. The procedure takes the better part of four hours, and is conducted in almost complete silence. Emily watches with morbid curiosity as Hope warps and twists John Gorman's flesh carefully reversing her sire's cruel additions. Finally, she stands back and surveys the man at her feet, and he's definitely now a man again, rather than an abomination. And if she didn't know any better, she'd think he always looked like this. Just as the thought of what to do next enters Hope's mind, the man's eyelids flutter and open. He scrambles to his knees and crawls away from her, his terrified screams filling the tiny concrete bunker. Hope 
Hey, 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 it's okay. It's okay. It's over. It's done. We got you, man. It's over. We're gonna help you. Just kick back. Uh, do you like dominoes? Hope looks over to the boxes she bought. Now a bit cold, but... The terrified man stares back, his eyes as wide as dinner plates. Hey, you. Do you... Do you have any idea what that monster did to me? I think so, but if you want to talk about it, I'll listen. It wasn't your fault. He was a monster. Even among monsters, he was a monster. You... You're not like him? Murmurs the man. He made me. I got his ass turned to bones. Now I'm undoing what he did. He... He changed me so many times. Made me endure all of it. Kept warping my body over and over. Trying to find a configuration that he liked. It was... As the full extent of his memory returns to him, he trails off. Utterly traumatised. Hope simply hugs him. It's okay. You don't have to right now if you don't want to. Emily rises from the mattress. With a concerned look on her face, she surveys the broken man as he trembles in Hope's arms. Isn't there something we can do for him? Make him forget? I can do maybe five minutes past. Not enough to erase all this. But given time, I might be able to figure that out. Or we could find someone who could. Actually, that's a question. John, uh, I'm assuming your name is John. Is your name John? As Hope releases the man from her hug, he stares silently back at her. After a minute, he finally nods. Emily looks down at him, doing her best attempt at a motherly smile. Do you have anyone you can go to? Friends or family? John shakes his head and sighs deeply. I live alone. That's why I was on the graveyard shift. Okay, I'm Hope, this is Emily, so I'm going to take care of you for a while. Now, this is a question you don't have to decide to answer right now, but you have a choice. You can either remember all of this and work through it. I go to therapy, and even though you can't exactly say what he did to you, you can talk about it abstractly, and eventually it will get easier. Or, we can see if we can find someone who can rewrite your memory and make you forget all of this. John silently nods. He spends a moment contemplating Hope and Emily, clearly trying to decide whether he wants to trust her or whether he wants to run away as fast as he can. His eyes dart to the metal ladder behind her, leading out to the dockyard. I... I want to remember, he says in a trembling voice. I want to remember so that this never happens to anyone else. Hope nods. Then this comes with a price. This is the harder road, but we can do that. Hope bites her wrist and offers it to him. If you drink this, you'll find yourself thinking of me more often, but it'll help you heal. It'll make you tough enough to deal with the stuff. We'll have to handle to make that happen. John hesitates for the briefest moment. That's what he did to me, but I owe you me life. I won't ever forget that. I'll do whatever I can to make it up to you. Then he leans forwards and grabs Hope's wrist. He hesitates once more, deciding whether he really means what he said. Then he raises it to his lips and licks away the drops of blood. 
Instantly, something changes in his face. The sadness and the terror are gone. His eyes glimmer with resolve, a grim determination to carry on. Hope's eyes flutter as he drinks. After he's finished, he turns away from her, wishing to be left alone. Not sure whether she's brought in peace, Hope turns her attention to Slick. Emily is hovering over the Slick fail hour, prodding it with her index finger. You can fix him, right? She asks. If you could fix John, you can definitely fix Slick, right? Relax, he's a hell of a lot sturdier. We got this. Slick can handle it, Hope's sure. But this metamorphosis is going to require a bit more than what she could muster for John. She does a flesh crafting role, looking for ten successes. All together this time. Hope rouses the blood, honing her senses to help her. The beast begins to purr as the pangs of hunger strike. And as she summons the power of the blood, she becomes acutely aware of the meowing coming from the duffel bag on the floor. <sighs> Probably best not to eat in front of John. Not just yet. She does her best to stifle the protests of her beast as she prepares for the procedure. Hours and hours pass. Hope loses herself in the complicated task of reforming Slick's body out of the flesh flower. Somehow, her sire has managed to compress Slick's entire bodily mass into a stem no thicker than her index finger. She's vaguely aware of Emily hanging over her shoulder, occasionally asking a question, trying to soothe Slick, but her brain doesn't process the words. When she's finally finished, she glances over at her phone, laying on the mattress. It's half an hour until sunrise. Instantly, Hope feels her muscles grow heavy, and her body slumps from a mixture of exhaustion and the pending day sleep. Slick lies before her, entirely nude, but somehow with his mohawk still intact. Emily leans over him, urging him to wake up. Eventually, he moans and opens his eyes. Emily gasps in relief. Slick, please say you're okay, she almost shouts. Slick moans again, shifting his body on the floor. He's probably in a lot of pain. Pizza, he croaks. Emily sobs loudly as she reaches for the Domino's box. Oh, Slick. There you go, Hope whispers, smiling. Well done, man, you fucking rocked. She pats Slick on his arm and slides over the clothes that Emily brought for him. Do me one last favour, she asks Emily. Take John with you back to you and Slick's place. And tell him the basics and bring him by tomorrow for another drink. She pauses. Does she really want to blood bond this guy? It's kind of... It's a standard kindred move. It's kind of exploitative, but if she doesn't, then this guy's a masquerade risk. He could go off and give the whole game away, and if he does that, the court will take him down hard and fast and come down on her. This is the best of the bad choices. Sometimes, the only choices you get are bad. Yeah, two more nights. After that, I'll see to his living arrangements. The Domino's is bone cold by this point, but Slick doesn't seem to care. He devours the entire pizza within a minute as Emily helps pull a baby chorus shirt over his shoulders. Ah, thank you, she says, 
as she reaches as he reaches for the empty box to search for crumbs. He'll be okay once he's had a good sleep, I think. As she helps Slick to his feet, she peers over at John. You're sure about this? Oh, Hope yawns. It's all psychosomatic, but she does it anyway. And don't mention the bloodstone and tracking thing. Make sure he keeps hush on that. We, we kind of cut a deal with an elder so she gets the credit and we didn't get turned to ash. It's getting hard to think. It's okay if it's rumors and stuff, but yeah, she's... We needed to keep this coterie safe. Hope is pulling her hoard around her now, fussing over the trinkets. Then her eyes light up. She looks at John Gorman's name badge and boop, it gets added to the pile. Mine now. Emily nods, acknowledging your words. She turns away from Slick, begins to help John up the ladder. I'll bring him back tonight, she says, giving Hope one last glance over her shoulder. Ah, it feels so good to finally have legs again, says Slick, winking at Hope as he crosses the bunker. Best of all, I learned some awesome mixtures from those alchemists. I learned how to make any pizza turn into dominoes with just a little vitae and some components. Almost at the hatch now, Emily loudly scoffs. That's... that's just putting shit on the pizza to ruin it, Slick. The Diablerie has taken its toll on Derek. The day sleep falls upon him like a great weight, stealing his senses away full hours before the first rays of sunlight pierce the sky. When he awakens, his haven is already cast in pitch blackness. When he tries to feed, his faithful flock shy away in fear, instinctually repelled by his ashen, corpse-like pallor. His nights are punctuated with half-remembered sensations and incomprehensible whispers from a life he never led. He finds himself wandering the streets of Fitzroy aimlessly in the dead of night, searching for something he cannot define amongst the alleyways, side streets, and shuttered cafes. His mind flashes with fleeting visions of Chicago, a place he's never been, and the beast inside grows impatient, violent with hunger, Help me! screams a female voice. Oh God, someone please help me! Instantly alert, Derek pulls away from the door he's trying to force open. The staff entrance of a Chinese takeaway and steps out into the rubbish-strewn alleyway. An orange-haired young girl, maybe, no older than 16, runs towards him. Look of sheer terror on her face. Please, they're after me! She whimpers, throwing herself into Derek's arms. You have to get me away from here. As Derek holds the trembling girl, the haze in his mind finally begins to depart. What is he doing here? As he tries to process what's happening, the metallic scent of blood stirs his beast. The girl's dress is covered in mud and still fresh bloodstains. And something about her aroma is overpowering, calling forth a hunger unlike anything Derek's experienced before. The scent of the girl's blood is overwhelming. Derek has no idea why, but he's never wanted anything more than to gorge himself on this girl, this specific vessel. His beast agrees, its excited snarls drowning out the girl's panic sobs. For the briefest moment, he's lucid enough to make an attempt to pacify it, but 
The second Inquisition plague, still running through his veins, shatters his resolve. The beast roars, and suddenly he's in the throes of hunger frenzy. Derek hisses, baring his fangs, and leans in towards her neck. The girl screams, kicks at his solar plexus, and pulls herself out of Derek's grasp. As she sprints past him, his beast growls in anger. Chase her, get her, kill her! Derek turns on the spot to pursue her, following the sweet aroma of her blood. She's cowering in the staff entrance of the Chinese takeaway, trapped with nowhere to go. Derek's lips twist into a smile as he steps towards her. Then the girl shouts, stay away, and hurls a piece of brick at him. It hits Derek on the side of the head, fracturing his skull, and the explosion of pain manages to chase away the beast. He stares down at the girl, his composure quickly returning. The scent of her blood is still overwhelming, now he's able to control himself, just barely. Suddenly, a shred of his humanity returns fleetingly in his mind. He wants to help this girl. Don't hurt me, she whimpers as he steps closer. Please stay away. Derek stops where he is, holding up his hands. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't know what came over me. I'm not going to hurt you, I swear. He says almost pleadingly, not sure he believes what he's saying himself. He said someone was after you, I might be able to help. He has to make a charisma plus leadership role to calm her, but has two penalty dice due to his low humanity. And nonetheless, he gets three successes. The girl shifts on her feet as Derek approaches her, rapidly searching for a way to escape. Finally, she slumps against the door, sinking into a ball at his feet. Her body twitches as she sobs. I guess I owe you a boon, pal, comes a harsh, nasal voice piercing the silence of the night. Derek turns around on the spot to see a thin, bespectacled man slowly making his way towards him from the alleyway. The pale pallor of the man's face makes it clear to Derek that his kindred, Ventru probably, based on the perfectly tailored grey suit he wears and the way his thin black hair is immaculately combed over his scalp. She's one of my vessels, he says, gesturing towards the cowering girl. Escaped from my haven. I'm sure I would have caught up with her eventually, but I appreciate the assist. She's worth a lot to me. You've got no idea how much time and money I've spent cultivating her blood to be just right. He lets the last few words hang on the air. As he takes a step forward, the girl wraps her arms around Derek's ankle. No, she whispers. Don't let him take me again. Vessel? Derek seems to spit the word, barely holding back his disgust at the idea. She's a child. Wait. Vessels? The Ventru shrugs. Ah, to feed safely these nights. A good vessel's worth their weight in gold, and I cash in a lot of boons to get this one's blood just the way I like it. So what do you say? Hand her over, and I'll let you tap that sweet discrasia she has in her veins right now. Derek almost seems to snarl at the idea of feeding from her, but he composes himself. 
It can be a little difficult these nights. What did you manage to do to her? I may not be Ventrue, but it doesn't mean I don't have my tastes. It takes all his willpower to keep up this act, making sure not to let him any closer to her. The Ventrue smiles proudly. I, uh, I like my vessels to be in a certain frame of mind. Dominated, controlled, always on the edge of fight or flight. The anticipation adds such a thrill to the blood. It takes a step closer behind Derek. The girl presses her body harder into his. I'm sure you can smell it on her. Her six months of terror, resignation and daring all mixed together within her veins. I've managed to keep her in this state permanently. Go ahead, take a little bit if you wish. I have no need to feed from her tonight. I merely wish for her to be returned safely to me. Six months. Derek waits a moment, letting that fact sit. Then he steps towards the Ventru with a newfound resignation. Take me to your haven, he commands. He rouses the blood and rolls four successes on his dominate. A fifth one added for this pathetic Ventru, being of the 13th generation. The Ventru stares back at Derek, his eyes glazed over. He blinks once, twice. Some part of him is fighting back against Derek's domination, but has no hope of winning. Finally, he nods, ah, right this way. He leads Derek down the alleyway, through a maze of cramped little streets, and eventually, they both step out onto a main road. This time of night, there's no traffic, no prying eyes to witness this Ventru's dirty little secret. He continues on past an op shop and a pizzeria and stops in front of a single-story red brick building on the corner. He reaches over and rolls up a metal shutter, revealing the shop front underneath. White letters stenciled in the window read, D&J and Partners, Tax Accountants. Behind Derek, the girl whimpers, knowing what awaits within. A few minutes later, Derek is standing before a rusted metal door at the end of a narrow hallway just beyond the need office space. Ventru reaches into his jacket pocket, produces an ornate silver key, and unlocks the door. Take your pick, he says in a monotone as he pushes it open. And Derek is staring at a cramped concrete room bathed in the harsh glow of cheap fluorescent lights. It's completely bare, save for three dirty mattresses on the floor. Two tiny, malnourished figures peer up at him, each sitting in an opposite corner. Two boys, almost no older than the girl behind him, perhaps even younger. Derek turns to the girl. I'm going to need you to wait in here for a moment. Don't worry, I won't be long, and you won't have to see this place ever again. He makes a charisma leadership role, once again with two penalty dice, but thanks to burning some willpower, ends up with three successes. The girl's lip trembles, and then she lets go of Derek's arm and steps away. She nods. Please, help them, she says, and then she steps back into the office space and hides behind a desk. As he watches her cower in the shadows, the expression on the Ventry's face suddenly changes, his glazed over eyes bulge, bloodshot, as his mouth twists into an angry scowl. He shakes his head, suddenly realising where he and Derek are, and why. Wait! What do you think you're doing? 
How did you get me to bring you here? Ensuring that the girl is no longer in the room, Derek turns to the man and thinks about answering, but decides against it. The man doesn't need an answer, doesn't deserve one. Instead, Derek reaches into his coat and draws his stake. He rolls a strength brawl check to try to subdue him. Without giving the Ventru an answer, he lunges towards him, his right hand clasped around the stake. Still dazed from being dominated, the Ventru barely manages to raise his arms before Derek is on top of him, pinning him to the carpet. As the tip of the stake tears through his jacket and touches his skin, he grunts, activating his fortitude. In an instant, the Ventru's skin grows hard and leathery, resisting Derek's assault. Derek grits his teeth, spurring the blood through his veins as he calls upon his vampiric strength, pushing the stake deeper. Finally, it pierces the Ventru's skin and draws blood. But that brief moment of hesitation was all he needed. His eyes flash yellow as he gazes into Derek's. Release me! He commands. Derek rolls intelligence resolve. He gets four successes. His newfound potency allows him to easily shut down the Ventru's pathetic attempt at coercion. The Ventru gasps in pain as Derek hammers the stake deeper into his chest and he lets out a single tortured scream as his eyes roll back in their sockets and his flesh turns ash grey. His body stiff, torpid. Derek releases him from his grasp and he drops to the floor with a thud. Derek looks up from this pathetic wretch to see the two boys standing in the doorway of their prison, their eyes wide and terrified. You, you killed him? One of them whispers, no, not yet, but he can't hurt you anymore. Derek tries to talk softly, slowly to set these already traumatised children at ease, but as he takes a step closer, they recoil away, sensing the beast within. Thankfully, Derek doesn't need to convince them of his intentions. Recognition flickers on the boys' faces as they catch sight of the teen girl peering around the corner behind him. You saved Elsie, says the boy closest to him, already cautiously approaching. Go and wait out there, Derek says, pointing down the hallway towards the office space. Then I'll take you somewhere safe. Both boys nod and, without waiting for Derek to tell them twice, run past him down the hallway. Now he's alone the monster held them captive. He tries to remember what the street was like outside. The building is a little tax firm on the corner of a main road, but it's in the suburbs. This time of night, surrounding businesses are all closed and there's very little traffic. Derek doesn't remember seeing any pedestrians on the street as he came in. There's an alleyway behind, between the tax firm and the next cluster of buildings leading to a narrow side street that runs along the back of all the businesses. Derek nods. He knows what to do. He finds some garbage bags in a nearby break room and spends the next ten minutes carefully wrapping the Ventru in them. Then, glancing over his shoulder first to make sure the children are still waiting in the office, he drags the Ventru down the hallway, into the break room, slides open the window, and drops him out into the narrow laneway that runs behind the tax firm. Burning with righteous anger, Derek climbs out after him and then hoists his torpid form over his shoulder. 
As he begins to search for a place to leave this Ventru to meet the sun, his beast purrs with anticipation. Yes, leave him to burn. He deserves it. He deserves it. Derek carries the piece of shit to the mouth of the laneway, where a large metal dumpster rests against the back wall of a fish and chip shop. It's overflowing with garbage, so much so that the lid sits askew, exposing the inside of the dumpster to the elements. With a flourish, he slides the bin open, sweeps a couple of bags of garbage out of the way, and drops the ventru in. He takes a moment to rip one of the garbage bags covering the Ventru's face away so that his stony visage is bared to the night sky and he turns and leaves. Fifteen minutes later, he steps out of the hallway into the office of the tax firm. Three children come running towards him, gathering around him without speaking a word. He kneels down to their level do you know where your families are? Or anyone who might know you're missing? One by one, the children shake their heads. The girl looks back at Derek, confused. I... I can't remember. Their faces are just a blur. The boy next to her nods. He did something to us. He made us forget where we came from. <sighs> of course he did. He tells the children to follow him leads them out into the night. There's a police station not far from the Ventru's Haven. Derek doesn't enter the building himself, but he points the children at the door and tells them to ask the police officer inside for help. They nod and peer through the automatic doors at the stern-looking female constable manning the reception desk. When they turn around to thank Derek, he's gone. Rescuing the children sets Derek's mind at ease, at least for a few nights, but barely a week later, he finds himself once again wandering the streets in the dead of night, searching for something from one of Alexander's half-formed memories, something the rational part of him will never find, which he looks for regardless, as a battle rages within him between his soul and someone else's. Before Derek's eyes, the rows of townhouses that make up this quiet street in the inner suburbs shifts and changes, becoming the bustling rack of Chicago and back again. In the distance, a bright orange glow lights up the night. Yes, of course, says a voice in Derek's head that's not quite his. The Chicago Institute of Art is hosting a gala. Annabelle is waiting at the party. Derek shakes his head, trying to dispel Alexander's persona. Suddenly, he's himself once again, walking along the cracked footpath somewhere in Brunswick. The bright glowing light still fills the sky, coming from a block or so away. As Derek approaches it, he sees and feels the immense heat of a fire burning out of control as it consumes a house at the end of the street. The fire brigade hasn't arrived yet, but a group of concerned onlookers gather at the edge of the nature strip, sharing panicked whispers. He's still in there, says one of them, an auburn-haired woman wearing a pink nightgown. Aiden's still in there. Why are they taking so long to get here? As if to punctuate her words, a desperate scream emanates from the burning house. Hearing it, the same piece of humanity which stirred the other night spurs Derek into action once again. He wants to help. 
but as he steps onto the driveway of the house and stares into the raging inferno, his beast cowers like a startled kitten. Get away! Run! Run! Derek makes a terror frenzy check. He rolls a critical seven. Even with the plague infecting his vitae, he's able to cow his beast to silence. As the stifling heat clings to his skin, Derek makes his way up the driveway to the burning house. The front door is open, its hinges warped from the heat, but flames rage just beyond the threshold. He might be able to push through them or weave around them if he's strong and fast enough, he decides. But he might like to search for a safer means of entry. He's not frenzying, but he doesn't want to run headlong into a fire. He rouses his blood, takes one long look at the flames, and then closes his eyes, summoning a premonition. Someone please help me, screams a male voice. A brown-haired man cowers in a bedroom, torrents of sweat running down his terrified face. Derek raises his hand to his face, blocking out some of the blinding flames, and begins to move towards the man. Suddenly there's a loud snap! and a rafter breaks on the ceiling above. Flaming plaster begins to tumble down, about to hit him. He opens his eyes. He'll be ready for that now, however he enters. He makes an intelligence investigation roll to search for another way in. He walks around the side of the house, starting to sweat blood from the heat. The back door is engulfed in flames, but there is a window looking out from the kitchen that appears to be relatively free of fire. Derek reaches over to open it, but it's locked. A small brass catch holds the window pane in place. Derek wipes some of the blood bubbling on his forehead onto his finger and drops it on the catch. Whispering the necessary incantation causes the blood to hiss and sizzle easily melting through the brass catch. Now unlocked, the window pane slides open at his touch. Derek climbs inside and steps into the kitchen. The heat in here is like a sauna, and although the fire hasn't yet reached this part of the house, his beast begins to rumble in his gut, begging him to leave. Help! Comes the man's voice from somewhere within the house. Derek rolls a wit's perception check to see if he can follow the man's voice. He stops for a moment, using his heightened senses to pinpoint the origin of the screaming. Somewhere to his right, a bedroom at the end of a long hallway. Bracing himself, he steps out of the kitchen and begins to push through the overwhelming heat. Flames look at the air only inches from his body, causing his entire figure to tremble each time they draw near. As Derek makes his way down the hallway, flashes of memory surge through his mind. Annabelle's child is trapped in the burning church, calling to the night as the flames Alexander lit sear his flesh. Derek shakes his head and presses on. Above him, embers begin to eat into a rafter on the ceiling. Remembering his premonition, he prepares to dodge when it finally snaps and falls. He makes a dexterity athletics roll with two bonus dice. He rolls four. Successes, nice, but still one short of the five he needed. As the flaming concrete tumbles down, Derek sprints forwards. The plaster crashes into the floor behind him and sends up a cloud of embers, singeing the back of his trench coat. In 
intense pain overwhelms his senses as the flames lick his skin, dealing a point of aggravated damage. Instinctively, he pulls himself free of the flames, but the howl of his beast quickly drowns out the cacophony of the fire. He makes a resolved composure check to stave off frenzy once more. Still wincing from the pain, Derek grits his teeth and presses on, doing his very best to ignore the panic stirrings of his beast. He steps into the master bedroom at the back of the house, where the brown-haired man from his vision cowers in a corner. His jaw drops open as he notices the rivulets of blood pouring down Derek's face. You, you, he stammers as Derek leans down, grabs him by the arm and pulls him to his feet. I'm getting you out of here, says Derek as he starts to lead the man towards the hallway. Distant sirens echo from somewhere outside. Five minutes later, Derek's boots touch down onto the soft grass of the backyard. The man lies at his feet, breathing heavily, recovering from Derek pushing him through the kitchen window. As he composes himself, he stares at Derek's blood-soaked face. Who, who are you? He whispers, the sirens of a fire engine growing rapidly louder. Not sure myself, says Derek, but I'm someone you should forget. The man's eyes glaze over. He winces in pain. When he regains his senses, Derek is gone. So, Hope, it's been an interesting couple of weeks for you. You finally managed to remember the circumstances that led to you being blessed, in your sire's words, with the blood of the Zemis. And you even confronted your sire, had your expectations shattered, learned that despite the infamous reputation of your clan, your sire was nothing more than a whining agitator, a neonate barely longer dead than yourself, and transfixed like a puppy on a primogen in a city that you'll never even visit. Added to all that, you survived an encounter with lupines on the way back to Melbourne, and you barely had enough time to recover from that before you had to justify your own existence at Elysium. But there's no rest for the wicked. You quickly got to work repairing your sire's mistakes, fixing Slick by restoring him to his usual form and helping John Gulman get a second lease on wife. And so, Hope, you need therapy. You definitely need therapy tonight. So you pick up the phone in a quiet moment when Joel Gulman is turned loose finally in the old harbour above your haven to take Barclays for a walk, 
get little dingo puppy used to maneuvering while dragging that huge lump of flesh that is the lupine arm around. Dial skateboard to put it on so it doesn't, you know. Yeah, so it doesn't drag on the concrete yeah. and, 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 and get chafing. It's been dragged along in a little wagon and John Gulman has just got the leash wrapped around the little dog's collar and Well, if you've ever seen a dog walking the owner, that's sort of what it's like. Every time the little puppy runs ahead, John tries to pull it back, but the lupine arm is way too weighty, way too strong. And when you check on him a couple times, you get the impression that it's more Barkley's walking John than the other way around. But... Okay. You dial... Dial Claire's number, and she answers almost straight away. Her voice is marked with concern. Hope, you... I haven't heard from you in a, in a few weeks. Uh, you missed your last therapy session, and uh, the people in the group and the, the counsellor, they, they were asking me about you, and... Yeah, um, my dad was in town. Oh. And I had to confront him. Oh, she says... She says, well, don't know what you, I, I don't know what you've been saying in those sessions, Hope. You know, it, I respect your privacy enough to not pry, but, well, looks like you must be some sort of pillar of strength for the others, and, yeah, yeah, the, 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 the counsellor was telling me that last session, Everyone seemed, well, or all sorts of bothered by the fact that you weren't there, constantly asking about you, saying they hoped you were okay, and that maybe the fact that you hadn't showed up was a sign that finally you'd found the piece you were looking for. Got it, says Claire. I suppose this is short notice, but uh, the next one's in about an hour if you can make it. Oh shit! Yeah, um, I'll be the same place. Yeah, okay. I better get going. Thank you so much, Claire. You are a lifesaver. Please take care of yourself, Hope. She says before she hangs up. Okay. And. Oh, <laughs> throw on some decent clothes, head upstairs. Uh, rats. No, no time for rats. I want to mix up and up anyway in case anyone notices, so let's call songbirds. Let's do the Disney princess thing. Go ahead, make a rouse check and make an animalism check. <laughs> Hungrier. Let's hope you get enough birds to cover this deficit. Hey, three successes. 
Three successes. Should be just what you need. You stand outside the shipping container, your eyes looking up into the sky, into the black, cloudy void. All is silent, save for the lapping of the waves distantly against the edge of the harbour and John's excited shout somewhere in the maze of myriad shipping containers. Barkulies! Barkulies! Oh, shit! Fuck! Fuck! Hey! Slow down! Oh, he's having fun. (laughs) Your beast purrs with anticipation as you hear the flap of wings and see... Three seagulls emerging from the clouds above, circling you before they land on the concrete at your feet. All three of them look out of sorts. It's the dead of night. You've woken them from their nightly slumber. And they've answered the call. Perhaps they have no idea what awaits. Song birds, but then I guess neither of us are exactly Disney safe, are we? <laughs> oh my god, you taste like gas. Yeah. Oh, oh what do you eat? Tra- oh, you eat trash. You eat trash. Of course, you eat bite trash. into the seagulls, and yeah, yeah they know, taste like trash. One goes down the gullet. One goes in the bag, stuffed in Hope's little handbag for later. But you bite into the ones that remain, and yeah. They taste like trash, a mixture of trash, seawater, fish, and something that, if Hope was Australian, she would immediately recognise as hot, salty chips, the favourite food of seagulls nationwide. Now I'm craving McDonald's, why am I craving McDonald's? <laughs> and an hour later, you're sitting in the little therapy room in the community centre, the walls emblazoned with motivational posters. That old cliche of the orange kitten hanging from a wire with hang in there, baby, emblazoned along the bottom of the poster. The therapist leans forwards, gives you a kind smile, and she says... So your uh, your dad came to town, Hope. Yeah, we didn't exactly part on good terms last time. I look around at the circle. They give you nods of encouragement. One guy, someone whose name you haven't quite committed to memory a downtrodden looking thin man in his 50s with permanent five o'clock shadow looks at you and he says ah fuck parents mine tried to get me in the army moment i turned 18 fuck that shit i watched me mates bleed out in some jungles of vietnam because of that bastard oh shit man that's yeah, my, mine, mine, 
never did that, but he tried to get me into the family business, which wasn't really nice, and the first chance I got, I put half the world between us. The therapist... And I thought that was the end of it, you know? The therapist nods understandingly, and she says, Of course, Hope, it's at your discretion how much you'd like to tell us, but was your father, by chance, involved with organized crime? Yes, he was. And that's all I can say about it. Ah, fuck that! Says the man in his fifties. It was some bad shit. It was... yeah. My old man was some cooker up in Queensland. He used to take pot shots at the cops from his farmhouse. Oh, I know exactly what it's like, love. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, pot shots. He was... He was trying to get something going here and he wanted me in. And I, I took some of my best friends. And I went there, and I basically, I told him to get the fuck out of my life. And how did that feel? Things got a little out of hand, and some people, I heard some people I didn't mean to. And, but he's gone now. He's, he's given up on that, I guarantee. I will not see him again. And now that he's out of your life, Hope, how does that feel? Does that... Feel liberating? It actually does. It actually does. I had estranged some acquaintances because of what he'd been doing, but they're they're tolerating me again and my friends my friends have my back. They were they were worried about me. Flashback to Vincent going, and how does this affect things for the memory showing up and I said they were worried about me. They were there every step of the way when I told him to fuck off. Therapist nods. And, well, good friends are worth their weight in gold. You know what they say, friends are the family that we choose. And hope you're better off without such toxic, bigoted people in your life. Spirit, love, says the man with the five o'clock shadow. What was it like confronting him? You know, I confronted my old man and my whole life. I thought he was all this and all that. He was just a little pathetic weed when I confronted him on equal footing. You understand? Yeah, he was... In my mind, I built him up to something scary and... 
horrible and like me only better in every way. And then when I get to him, he's pathetic. He spends half the time yelling about his last ex-girlfriend. And he's died. He was... I don't know, he just thought I'd just come back just like that. After what he did, what he did to me, he thought I'd forgotten. Kept going on about how blood is stronger, ties and everything. Oh shit. Blood go the brain uses the blood. The blood doesn't use the brain. Right on love, says the man, clapping, flushing you a thumbs up. He says, you know, my old man, me whole life, he strutted around, pretending he's some sort of bleeding war hero. He's all for queen and country, and <laughs> turns out he was a bloody analyst. Spent the whole war staring at screens and listening to radios. He was a Remeth? A rear echelon motherfucker? Seriously? <laughs> oh, man. The I mean, man nods, smiles. Work, but you don't fucking put on medals and act like you won it. Like, single-handedly. I mean, we didn't win it. Nobody won it. I reckon he bought them all from some bloody souvenir shop down the Gold Coast. Put them on, pretended they were the real thing. See, in the U.S., that's called stolen valor, and that will get you jumped and left for dead in the bar parking lot. Yeah. <sighs> Don't worry, I'm sure somebody out there jumped him in a parking lot anyway, love. <laughs> hey, he's out of your life now. That's what matters, right? That's what you matters. You get you it, love. A, you're living a life without him, and there's ups and downs, but overall, you're better without him, man. You moved on. And you know, he's wherever he is, if he's still around, he's just going to be stuck in the same old place. And that's... That's on him, that's not on you, you know? The therapist smiles and she says, that's that's a very good way of looking at it, Hope. I, I think this was healthy for you in the long run, and you seem so much freer now. I do feel it. Hope, go ahead and make for me resolve plus insight check, and you may have a Bonus dice. Alright. Four successes. Four successes. And that's it. In this moment, you look back at the therapist, you flash her a smile. It is liberating. Your lost point of resolve is permanently restored. Now, the matter of Duncan Wells. When you return to your haven, John's still tied up with Barclays. The first thing you hear as you climb off your Kawasaki, step into the harbour, is the excited yips of the little dingo puppy. John's still shouting, Fuck! Fuck! No, no! no not near the water! Oh, shit! You're gonna pull me in! Uh, best friends forever. He'll be busy for another hour or so, you estimate. This dog's been in your refrigerator for a few nights. He's got a lot of pent-up energy to work off. 
So you pull open the trap door, climb down the hatch into your little bunker, and reach underneath your folding camp bed. And underneath there's a bundle wrapped in garbage bags. You roll it out, rip the garbage bags off this pathetic wretch that is Duncan Wells. His glassy, torpid eyes stare blankly up at you, the stake still wedged safely in his chest. your blood, at least if your sire is to be believed. Well, fuck him. And so, you prepare yourself. Take a deep breath. Wrap your hands around the stake. Uh, yep. There's a few things before that. Go ahead. Have I already done the operation on Ah, no, there is that to do first. So what I'm going to do is strip down to the nude, put on an apron and a Suicide Squad brand uh, face mask. <laughs> and I'm going to basically start flesh crafting him. I will basically tie... I will basically meld his hands and his feet together around one of the po- support posts. So he's like up against it, standing more or less. And then I'm going to open up the chest and put in the prepared golf ball. I've got with the wires trailing off of it and the uh, a watch battery going in it, along with uh, some metal filings. When you press it in just the right way, it even emits a strange ticking sound. Feel it when it starts ticking, starts vibrating. He'll believe it's filled with shrapnel. It is indeed just an ordinary golf ball. But go ahead and make your flesh crafting check for me. Alright. Well, I'm going to go ahead and rouse and see if that seagull survives this. Nope, seagull's getting noshed. <laughs> out of goals. <laughs> it says as you wrench it out of the bag doesn't have a lot of time to protest as you sink your fangs into its body that's so awful oh roast beef now I'm craving Arby's fuck this no more goals seven successes seven successes that's more than enough You bind his legs and feet together, reducing both to fleshy stumps on the end of his appendages. And then you take that golf ball, that fake little explosive device, 
give it a tap so that it's nice and ticking and then wedge it deep in his guts where he'll never find it. Attach it to the lining of one of his major nerves so that he'll feel it the moment he wakes up. Then you seal him up. Admire your handiwork. Oh, and I'll text John. Gonna be busy for about for a while. Uh, text, you know, text first before coming in. The phone vibrates almost immediately, and you think he's trying to send you a thumbs up and a smiley face, but it's just a semicolon with about twenty spaces and then a bracket and then some random gibberish. It's the best he can do while Barkley's is dragging him around. Yep. All right. And then, ready now. Lean down. Wrap your hands around the stake. And drench it out. He sits straight up, gasping for breath. <gasps> And the Dave Evans version of Waltzing Matilda is playing softly on a deep, on a, an MPV3 play in the background. Yep, just sitting there on one of the shelves. The tones echoing through the little chamber. It's the first thing he hears as he awakens and it immediately piques his interest. You see his pupils dilate and the Tips of his ears twitch like a cat as they're immediately fixated on the music. Looks to the left, to the right, blinks a few times as his eyes adjust to the darkness. Then he sees where he is. Sees you staring down at him. And he says, Shit. Oh, shit. He looks down. Sees what you've made of his arms and legs and repeats it a third time. Shit! Yeah, um. Few things here. Mr. Duncan Wells. So, here's how this is gonna go. We're gonna have a talk. We're gonna decide a few things, and then, unless you get really stupid, you're probably gonna walk out of here. Go right ahead. You can make a manipulation intimidation check or you can make a charisma performance check. I believe I will make that charisma performance check here. That's a critical seven. Critical seven. Looks left to right again, his eyes fixate on the metal ladder rungs and the concrete behind you. Linger on them for just a second. Long enough for you to tell exactly what's floating through his mind. Uh-uh-uh, you say, wagging a finger, and then his attention is fixed on you. Also, the hatch is locked, but, uh, I saw during the fight, I say, like, going over and starting to wash blood off of my hands. You know. I saw during the fight uh, that you got a little scary, and I'm thinking you do that things that Toradors do. 
Just so you know, if you try that on me, it might work in the short term, but it won't in the long term. And I've got some long-term insurance inside with the minute. As you say this, he nods silently, nods multiple times. And then, I would like you to go ahead and make a composure plus intelligence check for me. successes. He smiles at you. It's the most earnest smile you've seen. And he winks and he says, oh, I wouldn't dream of it. I know what those of your blood could do. Believe me, I want to stay in your good books. And in spite of yourself, you're a little impressed. Here he is, completely at your mercy. For all intents and purposes, there's a bomb in his body that could go off at any moment. Indeed, even now, you can hear that faint ticking sound emanating from his body. And he's doing his best attempt to look as handsome and as composed as possible. You can't help but admire his coolness. See, this is what I'm talking about. I don't even know whether I honestly like you or whether or not this is something you're doing. This is a point in your favor. But anyway, we've got time, so what I'd like you to do is tell me about yourself. Who are you? Where did you come from? How do you end up uh, fanged? He smiles at you and he says, Hmm, well... It's a, it's not a story I'm uh, too keen on telling. You see, mainly because I don't remember the long and short of it. And he winks. Go ahead and make a wits insight check or a resolve insight check. Two successes. It's hard to get a read on him. He could be holding things back, trying to dodge your question, but it would be really stupid to do that in his situation. So you're left with no choice but to believe that he's genuine for now. Yeah, I'm thinking too well of him to imagine he's that dumb. Ah. Yes, so, okay. Do you know who made you then? He smiles. He says, yeah, some, uh, some scene girl. I uh, think she's Cam, but never knew for sure. Moment she saw that I didn't wake up, she, uh, ditched me, and uh, when I was able to finally track her down, said she wanted nothing to do with me. 
said I was bad for her reputation. Well, you know what I say. Maybe you shouldn't head over to a Billy Joel concert while you're on the edge of hunger frenzy and... That way you... That way you won't end up uh, draining a roadie and having to embrace him out of guilt, know what I mean? Oh, man, you're a roadie. Okay, okay. That explains a lot. Did he ever get a name for her? He thinks for a moment, and he looks up at you and he says, Maybe. If I gave you a name, what would you do with it? seem to want you, so it's a point against. I go over to whiteboard, write down Sire Frowny Face, and this is pros and cons of Duncan Wills. It says on a label above it. <laughs> go ahead, make a charisma persuade check. And that's in the con- and that's in the con section. Charisma persuade. Is he? He's not in the body mod culture. Right. He's not. Four successes. He smiles, he nods, and he says, Yeah, good point. Like, I give a fuck what happens to her. Bitch didn't want to show me the ropes of the curse she gave me. And, and, let's get this straight. Vampirism, it's a curse. But, being a thin blood. That's a double whammy. You see, not only am I a monster of the night, but I'm at the complete bottom of the totem pole. And even the Anarchs will think twice before giving me the time of day. Well, unless I turn on the charm, that is. He smiles. He says, the one good gift she actually left me. Okay, he says. Pros. Charm. That gets underlined in exclamation points. <laughs> right Sarah's on. Name goes into prose column, and I look at him questioningly. Right on, he says. Scene girl by the name of Joanna Linden. Joanna Linden. Oh, let's see. She was at a concert. I mean, I could go by stereotype. I guess door door, but if. And well, hey, man. If it means anything, he says, that butchering you did of waltzing Matilda, I mean, normally bad music is, well, makes my ears bleed, but it was like your voice was grating at my very soul. (laughs) I I jabbed a thumb over to the ukulele. Yeah, I was ready to torture you some if it came down to it. But... I figured Dave Evans was probably a better one. Yeah, I, I, I never actually learned how to play one of those fuckers. He shrugs and he says, So, you know, I've always thought Tori adore, but, you know, could be Bruja. You know, maybe. I ain't ever been known to have much of a temper. He looks at you. He smiles innocently. I only threw that knife and those stakes at you because... Spider told me to, and uh, 
He said that you made a blood plague that was killing off all the kindred in the city, and as far as I knew, I was taking down someone who needed to be taken down a peg. To hear that would fly, except you didn't blink when Spider mentioned that you were going to get him an upgrade. And I'll win. Cons, all right. Cons. Wanted to drink my soul. He... I like you, man, but I don't think you're nearly this, as innocent as you're making out here. He shrugs. He says, he says, maybe not. Maybe, maybe you're right. And look, come on. Put yourself in my position. Bottom of the totem pole. Then you get a chance to get an upgrade and take down someone who deserves it at the same time. If you were in that situation, you'd go for it too. Except that I did. Took down my sire, cleared my name, and the dead men. Somebody else ate him. And holy shit, it went bad. My sire fought all the way down. It went way bad. Wait, 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 he says, raising an eyebrow. So, you went after the Fleshcrafter after all, and you got him. You bagged him, and... Damn, I guess that means Spider is... Bites his bottom lip. Now, that's, that's a question, man. Friends, friends, or is he like working friends? He shrugs. Well, sort of knew him when I was still breathing. You know, I'm a roadie. I do a lot of gigs and bikers. Well, you know, they tend to be into their rock music. So we'd cross paths a couple of times, but wouldn't exactly call him a friend. Though I will say. He's one of the few full-blooded kindred that actually bothered to be nice to me, and that means something. Yeah, there's kind of a vampire racism thing going on here against you guys. It took me a while to figure out that, uh, oh, it was actually sleep and fire. I heard a rumor that you could eat us and become of the same clan, and like, woo. I can see why that would bother the Camarilla. Normally somebody has to vouch for you guys to get in, but... For anyone to get in. But he can just by, bypass the process. Fuck the can, he says, shrugging. I would have been a full-blooded Tory Adora, and that would have been more than enough to put me in Baron Sue's good graces. message I intercepted, Spider was pretty excited about bagging its Eatsy. Did he mention why that was? He frowns. He says, wait a minute. Ah. It's all adding up. Wait. You said you took on your sire. That means... The Flesh Crafter was your sire? His eyes are suddenly wide as he realizes 
yeah. He says, here I was thinking you were a Toreador or something like that who learned a bit of flesh crafting from someone or something. Uh, well. Oh, that's what he told you. Oh, my. He shrugs. I don't claim to know how any of this works. I know I can turn on the charm thanks to what my sire left me, but, you know, us thin bloods, we gotta cobble everything that you guys take for granted together, and when Spider comes up to me and says, Hey, hey, there's a Toreador. She knows how to do fleshcraft, and, well, uh, I guess I didn't question her. going after me beyond, hey, come on, we got a bitch to eat. Or did he tell you anything more? I, ha I have her hand over by the crow's column. At this, he says, hmm, well, you know, he just told me that there was a criminal at large, and if I played my cards right, I could get a bump up the totem pole while doing everyone a good deed. Go ahead and make a resolve plus insight check for me. Alright. Three successes. Three successes. Yeah, it's about long and short of it, he finishes, and you nod. Doesn't seem like Spider would have had to tell him much. This guy doesn't seem to really understand how kindred work. And when you're at the bottom of the totem pole, sometimes you get desperate, man. Friend comes along, says, hey, hey, come with me, pull your weight. You can get a bump up the ladder. Well, sometimes, sometimes you are not in a position to question things. and write no information about Spider. His motives. Eh, okay, that's a pity. He shrugs. Eh, you know. He mentioned that you'd had some bad blood at some point, but didn't go into specifics. Yeah, see, I tried to mend fences on that one, and that pisses me off that he went after me anyway. But, hey, that's not on you. Okay, next question. Did he ever mention Martin or the Second Inquisition back about half a year ago? Did he ever talk about that? I don't know. He says, that's quite a while ago. And you're expecting me to just remember some name I might have even only heard once? If it's Second Inquisition, that I thought that might stand out some. Seeing as this was a major play of this, trying to get kudos with the Baron. Go ahead and make me a charisma persuade check. Two successes. He shrugs. 
Yeah, you know what, come to think of it, that name does stand out. Martin Langley. Yeah, yeah, it was about a year and a half ago. Don't suppose he was that bloke that Spider had locked up in his haven. Sure was. Hands moving over to the pros column now. Yeah, how did Spider get a hold of him? Did he have anything to say about him? Yeah, that was the, uh... Well, that was the strange part, says Duncan, frowning. See, Spider told me he'd captured the guy, and I took a look at him, and this guy, I don't know if he was military, fed, but, you know, he had the air of, had this air of being a guy you don't really want to fuck with about him. And so I thought, well, there's going to be some interesting story behind this. I mean, you don't tangle with a guy like that and come away with without at least something fun to talk about. So I asked Spider how it went down and would you believe that Spider got a tip from some guy he was in touch with, told him to go to a specific place at a specific time and Martin was already there. He was tied up, his weapons had been taken away, he'd already been subdued. All Spider had to do was stick him in the back of the van and bring him home. Oh, God, that makes so much sense. <sighs> Believe it or not, I didn't set out to kill Spider. I wanted to have him about the same situation you were because you could clear up a few more things, but if that's how it went down with an anonymous tip, then yeah, I wouldn't have gotten much more. Uh, over in the pros column, I put down info about two I. <sighs> I didn't want to kill Spider, but the beast sometimes has other ideas. You know how that goes. He smiles and is doing his best attempts to come across as innocent and endearing, but thin blood or not, he's still a vampire, and you're almost certain that he understands what you're talking about. His beast has almost certainly had him cross lines, do things he never would have done when he breathed. He nods and he says, Spider thought he was doing a good thing. Voice on the phone told him that this Martin guy was a patsy for the Inquisition. Put himself in a position to get embraced by the prince so he could feed all the, uh, all the juicy intel back to his handlers and Well, Spider, Spider trusted the guy on the phone. See, don't know quite who it was, but Spider seemed, seemed pretty convinced that when this guy told him something was gonna happen, that it actually was gonna. Guy was a malk or something. crazy when you think about it, right? Visions of the future. How do you 
even begin to resist something like that? How do you factor that into your plans? I mean, you can have everything figured out, then somebody wakes up and goes, Oh, the rooster crowed at midnight. That must mean blah, 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 blah. And so I have to kill this guy. He shrubs. Well, vampire bullshit, am I right? He nods. He says, yeah, yeah, I'll give you that one. Look, some thin bloods can do it. What I've heard, they're even better at it than the Malks are, but... You know, something about those weird motherfuckers. They're all mad. You can never know what the hell they're on about half the time, but there's always a grain of truth in it, and... Well, Spider knew that, and he tried to change things. And then you came along, and... Well, here's Martin. I didn't hear what happened to him, but... I assume he's living in luxury in the Prince's Haven at the moment. Yeah, you go to an Elysium. He's right up there next to Larson and Specs. Prince's child. That one's public info. Pretty sure the same hand that manipulated Spider is manipulating me and quite a few others, but and that's one reason I'm thinking. This one reason I'm telling you you're going to be walking out of your life, but we'll get that onto that in a second here. Let's talk alchemy. You've got that telekinesis thing. I put down in the prose column alchemy with a smiley face and telekinesis under with a few more lines. I'm assuming you've got a few more tricks. Yeah, it's useful. I'm a damn sight better at it than Slick is, he says. If I... Yeah, if, that's all. If you'll permit me to yeah. toot my own horn. No, go ahead, man. He says, see, I knew something was up. You know, Slick is... Well, you know, we're thin bloods. It's not like we're going to turn away someone who's just like us. But Slick is, well, he's got a reputation. He's good at punching shit and not good at much else unless it involves eating cardboard. I guess he calls it pizza, doesn't he? Domino's. Jesus, I do not know his obsession there. Yeah, you got me on that one. I don't kink shame or gut shame. It's like I I haven't held down solid food in a while, so at this point I even take Domino's. Go on. Well, he's going around suddenly saying that he's learned alchemy and he's top shit at it. And he's... Hoping that whoever's taken Alchemists takes him next because his buddy, he's hoping Derek, are gonna chase right after the bastard and get him back. And... God damn it, Slick. I love the boy, he can't keep the secret word to damn. And actually, that's what. Well, that's what. Got me into this whole mess, he says. See, everyone knows Slick and Enemy, Slick and Emily are tight with you guys, and... Well, when I told Spider what Slick had been saying, he was convinced that there was more truth to it than anyone else thought, and so he told me to follow Emily around. Next thing I know, she's holed up in a motel pointing a pair of binoculars at uh, this old shipping yard on the edge of Footscray, and, uh, well, I put two and two together. Assumes that 
That must be where you were hiding out. Never could find this place, though. He looks around. I wonder prose I put down. Honest about the Emily Slick connection. This is, hey, look, I... Nothing against Slick and Emily. Slick's a nice enough guy. If you like the same music as him and, uh... If you can stomach a slice of dominoes whenever you hang out with him. And Emily, well, from what I understand, she's pretty resourceful. Uh, you know, I, I, I snuck into her motel room. She had all these laptops and screens and things set up. Clearly, she was uh, the handler of your operation. And, you know, I remember now you guys were wearing GoPros and things like that. He nods. Saw a car parked out the front. Checked inside. And I think she saw me, because I remember someone peering out second floor window of the motel, but she'd seen me too late. I'd already gotten into the car, snatched the spare motel key she had in there. I mean, yeah, we GoProed the shit. We went at the deck style. We didn't know what we were, what we were walking into. So we figured this might help prevent an alien scenario. And maybe later I'll show you all we went through. I got, I got footage. But... Okay. Okay. Okay, the fact that you snuck in and didn't kill Emily. I go over to the pros column. Left Emily alive. He shrugs, flashes you a handsome smile, and he says, Hey, man. I wasn't out to just kill people. Like I said, I thought I was doing a good deed, and I don't have any beef with Emily. All right. Okay. And it also sounds like if you're telling the truth, you didn't know that we were rescuing the Thin Bloods, the Flesh Taker, and the Flesh Crafter taken, so. I can't tell if you're being honest or lying there, so I'm not going to put it in a column, but good on you if you are. All right. Did you end up rescuing him? He says, blurting it out in spite of himself. I I mean... Yeah, we... I mean, I, 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 I knew one of... One of the alchemists, and... Uh... Um, we got four of them, and I list the names... Problem is, on the way back, we got hit by lupines and Morgana got pulled out of the car and killed. Fucking dogs. He lowers his head. Yeah. Well, uh, she was the one I was mainly concerned about. Sorry, man. I... She looked... She seemed awesome, and I was open. We got footage of that, too. It's... Not pretty. Uh well, you know what, you tried, and I appreciate that. She probably went out quicker and 
much more painlessly than you know she would have if she'd ended up as someone's lawn chair or something like that. Flower. He developed a way to turn people into fucking flowers. You don't this say. Entire, he this says. This was the entirety of three nights ago, untangling slick like some origami project gone mad. You had him down to like compressed flesh about this much. He just raises an eyebrow at you and he says, that's... Well, that's quite frankly fucking terrifying. And I'm a few feet closer because I'm I'm just playing with them. I'm not doing anything. I'm like, yeah, turns out we can do shit like that. <laughs> Go ahead, make a charisma performance check for me. And I know how to do it since I spent a whole ass long time untangling. Three successes. You're standing right in front of him, and in addition to your words, he's well aware of the bomb in his body ticking away. And at this, he sighs, and suddenly that look of confidence is gone, his presence deflating. And he says, uh, yeah, I guess I should just uh, be honest with you, huh? Alright, look, we won't fuck you around anymore. I think... I think I've managed to get you to understand that at least I ain't much of a threat, but I still want to get out of here with my body intact, not as a flower, and with this thing you've put in me safely removed. So, go ahead, ask your questions. Clear up any lies here, it's not gonna count at the cons call. One point, one time offer. He thinks for a moment. You see his eyes drift to the right. He's once again focusing on the ladder and then he peers back at you. He shakes his head, then he says No no I told you everything I know. Go ahead and make a Resolve Insight check. And this time he will not get a bonus dice in his pool. Two successes. Two successes. For the most part, you believe him is being forthcoming so far, but based on how his gaze keeps drifting to the ladder behind you as he insists he told you the truth. There must be something he's holding back. I'll gently put a hand on his face and say, Are you absolutely sure? <laughs> Go ahead and make a charisma intimidation check. success. 
I won't willpower this. It's okay if he doesn't tell me. He looks into your eyes and he says, Okay, the thing with Spider. Well, he was going around telling people Squizzy had blood bonded him, right? And I think at first it was true. I mean, I wasn't there, but he said that Squizzy did force him to drink his blood and had him back there two nights in a row after that to seal the deal. He says, but... He confided in me. It wasn't long after that that his friend, the voice on the phone, got in touch with him. And see, this guy, this, this Malk or whoever he is, he knows a lot of shit. He broke the blood bond. Said he had some SI contacts who had figured out how the whole thing worked. Turn up at a place at a time, and Spider did. Got a box with a syringe with some green shit in it. Injected it. What do you know, it worked. Blood bond was broken. But then he owed that guy a favour. The guy said, I'll need you to take care of some loose ends when it's time. And for what it's worth, I think... When you tried to mend bridges with Spider, he really did think that, well, that was it. You were even, but then the blood hunt got called on you and he gets a phone call and it's the same guy saying, now's the time. Hope's a loose end. Blood hunt's on. You can go and take her down without facing any blowback from the court. Have at it. And so he did. I'm guessing on this, and you just confirmed. Of course, the ironic thing is, it was a win-win situation for the voice on the phone, because Spider had gotten the anonymous tip. So if Spider died, that loose end would be tied up, and if I died, that loose end would be tied up. Oh, this is starting to make sense. I won't go into the pros column. And just erase the cons column. He shrugs. Oh, I'll take that as a good sign that I'm walking out of here alive, but I gotta know. You're not just gonna let me leave with knowledge of where your haven is. And... No. So, so I'm gonna guess you're gonna want something out of me. That up there, that was your job interview. You just aced it. So here's what's going to happen. What's going to happen is that I, you are going to get three drinks from me. I will deactivate the timer, but the item will remain in your chest just in case some green goop gets in your system somehow. And I'll go ahead and pass out the uh, phone number to call to my friends. 
in case anything happens to me so that they can set it off if I'm not there. He nods. That's it. That's it. This isn't going to be a permanent thing. I... I'm an ex-shovelman, man. I don't know what you know about the Sabbat, but it was not a good transition. I ran like a fuck the second I got the chance. I don't get off on torture, killing, or slavery. So what I'm thinking you're going to do is you're going to work off the debt to me and make up my coterie. And I'm going to offer you a choice. You can either do ten years of relatively risk-free work, like you go do your thing and I'll call you in when I need a favor you're good for, and I won't guarantee it will be totally risk-free, but I'll only call you in in emergencies and I'll try to make sure you survive. I'll treat Lily like I treat any of my, of my other friends. The other one, the other option, is that we cut it down to a year, but it's going to be risky shit. Like, you're probably going to end up being my body double a time or two. And I can't guarantee your survival. I won't, I won't waste you without a good reason, but I'm going to prioritize other people's lives ahead of your own. He thinks for a moment, and... The Oops. good news is that the highly risky situation will probably blow over well before a year is done, but I can't swear to it, so... He says, well, hey, you know, I guess the safe option is to take the ten years, but... Well, you didn't torture me. I put that in my own prose column. And you didn't turn me into a lawn chair. I'm going to put that in my prose column. And, well, for the most part, you've treated me with respect in spite of me being a thin blood and all. Haven't insulted me, haven't called me any names, and... Yeah, yeah, I know, I'm your prisoner and everything, but you sort of treated me like an equal. I'm going to put that in my prose column. And, all right. If I'm going to be a body double, I'm going to be a body double. I'll take the year of servitude. All right. Well, and hope bites into our wrist. Wrist rings for you tonight. He nods. Yeah, you know, I guess, guess there's worse people to be enslaved to. At least you ain't locking me in a cage, threatening to turn me into a flower unless I do alchemy for you. That was the other guy. Leans over and licks the blood from your wrist. to sink in and pull my wrist back alright see you tomorrow night shunk goes the stake he opens his mouth to say something but all he manages is a 
as you shunk the stake into his chest and his eyes roll back in their sockets. Skin turns grey, stony, and his torpid body falls onto the concrete with a thump. Just as his body hits the ground, you hear a voice from up above, beyond the hatch. Barculies, fuck! Stop fucking splashing water all over! Look, we're back! We're back! Mummy's waiting for you! Uh, oh, I pick up a tablecloth, uh, look at the apron, throw it off, shrug on some, like, sweatpants and a t-shirt. Ah, yeah, hang on. Be up in a second. (laughs) Make a middle note. Disable the ticker when I get a chance. Slide... Slide the torpid form of Duncan Wells back onto the camp bed. Wrap it once again in garbage bags. And then you just finished pulling a sweatshirt over your chest when... You hear the sound of the hatch creaking open. Yip, yip, yip! With the dingo puppy. As it leaps down. You hold out your arms as the puppy leaps down the shaft into the bunker. Lands in your arms and nearly bowls you over with the weight of the lupine arm. You're getting so big and strong. Ah, yeah, he's a good boy. The dingo, the dingo... Yips again, and then he leans up and licks your face. And it's at this point that you realise that his fur is soaking wet. Fucking took me for a run in the fucking harbour, says John as he climbs down the ladder. His security guard uniform is drenched in a mixture of mud and dirty river water. Oh, man, hang on. I've got some fresh clothes here somewhere. I go over to, like, the stand-up cloth wardrobe I put in here and take out a few things. I'm sorry. Evidently, we're going to have to adjust for this. He's way stronger than I expected he'd be. <laughs> as you Our say this, as you say this, he leaps out of your hand, and as he lands on the floor, the lupine arm clenches into a fist and slams the concrete, leaving a tiny fist-sized impact crater. Holy shit. Tell me again where you got this fucking thing from, says John. Uh, werewolf arm. Right. Because that's a thing. Why wouldn't that be a fucking thing? Why wouldn't that be a fucking thing? I mean, we've got vampires. I spent weeks as a blob in a chair with a fucking tentacle. Why wouldn't werewolves be a fucking thing? I know, right? God, I wonder where the fuck else is there. They're probably not fairies. We're not that lucky. You'd be surprised. He says... Grew up on a farm out in the outback. Strange lights I used to see at night. Oh, shit. It was either UFOs or... He sees a look on your face. <laughs> nah, I'm just fucking with you. Fairies, okay. come on. Got to draw the line somewhere. I know, I know. That'd be utterly ridiculous. Oh, 
you done good, man. I think it's time for Barkley's nap, and he can't get back up the ladder, so uh, gotta put him to bed. And you wanna go get some? You wanna go get something to eat? Yeah. I mean, as much as you eat, anyway. Uh, you know what? I'll pick it up and make it look good. He smiles. Spending weeks in that gatehouse, just down the road from it. I'm really, really fucking craving an Otolly's burger. Eh, yeah, where the fuck not? <sighs> and let's go. My shout, he says. You know, for some... Oh, oh, I can... I can activate my breathing and smell the fraud. Yes, that works. That'll help. <laughs> Yes, I am going to barf so bad later, but I really, really want their fries right now. Let's go do that. He smiles, gestures towards the ladder. After you, love. And we fade oh, out. Don't here. mind if I do. And with that, we fade out. You have successfully recruited Duncan Wells into your service. Alright. You gain two experience, and you gain... A specific boon from Duncan that you may employ once before the end of the campaign. And that is, either he will serve as your body double in a situation of your choosing, or he will concoct a blood alchemy formula of up to level four of your choice for you. He's eager to prove that he can pull his weight. Yeah. And for the record, once he's uh, fully bonded, he'll get let he'll get taken out, staked, and woken up somewhere else. So he never does know exactly where the haven is. Yeah, he'll wake up a few nights from now uh, on the edge of a kid's playground in the suburbs, and he'll understand why, but. He'll walk oh, away yeah, just... Because I'll be there to pull the steak out. Pull the steak out. He'll understand why you're doing it, but he'll walk away with just a little sense of disappointment. Well, there'll be times for you to eventually trust him, he'll figure. Yeah. That concludes our Wellsness check. <laughs>